Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Well, welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. Our goal each episode is to bring you discussion, ideas, and information you can use as foresters and land managers. I'm Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. Uh, hey, Greg, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad, that's my new buzzer app. Sound pretty good, huh? See? Uh, maybe to you. Uh, I wouldn't call that good. Okay, maybe it's a little rough, but hey, it's perfect for today's episode of Silvacast because today we're going to play Silviculture Jeopardy, or like you like to call it, Treeperty. Treeperty. All right. All right. Well, hey, but you got to give it to me the buzzer because I get to be Alex Trebek, right? <laughs> it's going to be good. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's that's fine. Fine. Let's right. uh, let's let's get on with it and play the first You're good to round. Go? All right. Let you may choose from the board. So, Alex, start easy. Give me painful acronyms for two hundred, please. Oh, C M A I. Okay. Let's see. What is culmination of mean annual increment? Very good. Very good. So, okay, Alex. Let's let's go a little harder here. I'm going to go down the board. Give me old world natural regeneration methods for 600, please. Langfristiger Blenderschlag. Oh, what was that? Langfristiger Blenderschlag. What? Um, let's see, okay. Uh, well, it's got schlag in it. So Alex, um, I'm gonna go with uh, what is group selection? Um, no, and no. <laughs> no, um, but it's it's uh, it's what is a German cutting method best described as a form of irregular shelter wood. Oh, and okay. it's I'm glad you picked that one, Greg, because today on the show, uh, we're going to be talking about specifically irregular shelter woods. And, mm -hmm. and I know you and I, we've talked about irregular shelter woods a lot. We've been hearing about it more and more. And I think this is something mm -hmm. that a lot of people are going to be interested in. Yeah, yeah, we do hear more uh, talk about this particular natural regeneration method, I guess. And we do see it being used or tried more uh, in all different kinds of forest types in the US and Canada. But I would say it's sort of difficult for me to put my finger on what exactly it is. I mean, how do you define and implement the method that is, well, it's irregular? Exactly. And so today on Silvacast, we're going to bounce this question off one of our favorite silviculture professors, Tony D'Amato from the University of Vermont, Yay. to see if, and, and we love Tony, and we're going to see if he can help us clear this up. Um, and I know, you know, this kind of comes to from you and I, I think we're really big believers in the idea that if we're going to use terms, we need to be professionals, we need to use them in the right, we need to recognize what the term means and how it's used, not only mm -hmm. for interactions with ourselves, but maybe with foresters in the future when we're trying to do these things. So hopefully he can really help with that. I can't wait to hear that discussion, Brad. Uh, but before we get started, 
Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by Swiss Femmelschlag AD, the laxative that lets you say, hey, it's great to be a regular. Where do we come up with these? I love it, Greg. Hi, Tony D'Amato. How you doing? Good to see you, Greg. Good to see you, hey, Brad. Well, hey, welcome. Yeah, we don't uh, get to see you quite as often anymore. Um, I was going to say many of our listeners, and I use the word many really loosely here, <laughs> um, may recognize you from your days at the University of Minnesota uh, before you left for the great Northeast. And so welcome back to the Lake States. Tell That's us a little bit about where you're at now and what are you doing? Yeah, so now I'm uh, on the other side of the Northern Hardwood type over in Vermont. So I'm at the University of Vermont and I'm the director of the forestry program here, but um, thankfully still get chances to connect back to some great old friends in silviculture in Wisconsin. So it's good to be back with, with both of you today. Yeah, we get, uh, we get to actually do some projects with you from time to time. So that's good you, that you, you haven't completely pulled your foot out of the Midwest. So no. So welcome welcome back yep i remember one of our last in-person meetings i think we had with you tony we were sitting around over a drink i think actually you had a chili beer if i were or something like that and i knew and we somebody were, was going to bring that up well it, it was interesting it was interesting <laughs> yeah it was more but but we were talking about the importance of terms um and it feels like you know we're always presented with terms and sometimes those terms are misused or maybe people don't quite understand them and Greg and I have had a lot of conversations about maybe the just the fundamental importance of, of why we use terms correctly and stuff like that. And that kind of brings us to a little bit of what, what we're talking about today, the kind of a concept or a term irregular shelter wood. Um, Tony, you've worked with this for a while. Uh, what is an irregular shelter wood? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting term uh, in many respects, because, you know, as we were talking about a little bit, before we started today, you know, there's been growing interest in, in using irregular shelter woods. And, and I think because there's varying interpretations of what it is, it's often become a catch-all for anything that doesn't look like a normal shelter wood or doesn't look like group selection or, or single tree selection. And so when we're talking about irregular shelter woods, really we're getting into a multi-age uh, shelter wood system. So we have at least two age classes that were maintaining on the site. And so a portion of that overwood that we traditionally would have taken off with removal cuttings um, is gonna be out there for 20%, at least 20, greater than 20% of the, the age of the, the new rotation. And so really exceeding what would, would classify that as an even age method. But, you know, the term irregular um, in kind of our lexicon is, is kind of a, a negative term in the tradition of, of, of silviculture and forestry. We mm -hmm. use things like balanced and normal and um, and those often were kind of the desirable condition. And so when you see a regular come up, you know, I always joke with my students, it's not something we often want to be described as. And so, you know, there's this historic use of that term as not being a, an uneven age method that's perfect, managing a perfectly balanced stand. You know, you really are creating a stand that has um, unequal allocation of growing space to your cohorts. So as opposed to kind of the classic balanced uneven age stand that we often hold up as the the model with the reverse J-shaped curve and very much uh, theoretical, often hard to attain um, out there in the landscape. But nonetheless, you know, that's assuming that every cohort occupies a similar amount of space in that, in that stand. Whereas with the regular, we're really allocating, 
you know, a disproportionate amount of growing space to typically the, the regenerating cohort, but nonetheless reserving some of that growing space for what we might call reserves or, or permanent retention, depending on how we're, we're doing that method. And so broad brush for regular shelterwoods really are, you know, shelterwood technique um, where we're carrying it over would at least create a 2H stand. And there are some techniques, um, continuous cover or regular shelterwood that um, those are the potential that you could have three age classes, depending on how you're, you're using it. But um, like, as I mentioned, I, I, I always laugh when I put up the term irregular um, when I'm teaching silviculture, but it, uh, I'm actually talking about something that's very positive from an ecological standpoint, but, but often like just, just taking that face value might seem like it's something that um, isn't as ideal as another way of approaching mm -hmm. managing stands. So at a broad level, it is a natural regeneration method, right? So, so each, like a shelter would, each entry, you're trying to produce a new cohort of seedlings and that overwood is acting as some type of a shelter to them and altering that, that environment for them. So that's still consistent with a regular shelter wood. It just then becomes irregular in the sense of whether you take that overwood off or how you take it off, right? Exactly. And, and, and beyond, you know, relying on natural regeneration that are being established under that shade, what that implies is that the, that the, the source is advanced regeneration. So you are trying to build up or capitalize on advanced regeneration um, prior to removing that overwood, either partially or, or completely. And so because of that, you know, you, you're, you're working with, you can really work with a range of species, as, as you all know, I mean, great work on even paper birch shelter woods, you just have to get the overwood off pretty darn quick. Um, and, and so, you know, most of our species can establish and persist for, you know, even a year or two for our most intolerant species in shade. But, um, you know, the, so what we're doing a shelter would really advance regeneration is the primary source um, that we're, we're after there um, with that method. So are we restricted to shade tolerant or mid tolerant species with that? Or can that irregular openings be large enough that we actually get into intolerant species as well? Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of the interest and in, in the, the interesting thing about a regular shelter was, so the first time I was exposed to it, I guess I was um, privileged definitely. And, 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 and uh, just from an education standpoint, I have Bob Seymour as my, my silviculture professor and mm -hmm. um, this was in the, the mid to late nineties when he, he kind of came back with this from Germany with this, this Femmelschlag, you know, really excited about that's as far as my German goes. So I apologize for those <laughs> for more than that. I think it kind of means group cut is the rough, uh, yeah. translation of yeah. that um and uh and so you know there was a there was a lot of interest particularly um in the acadian mixed forest so uh, you know these are these are systems that have you know certainly hemlock uh spruce and fir but also there's there's species like yellow birch and paper birch and um that that are a bit more light demanding and so there became you know a lot of interest both in in how these irregular methods even though again the traditional objectives associated with them are much more economic that aspects of them really fit nicely with our understanding particularly of like mesoscale disturbances you know the, these events that might not be stand replacing they might not be gap scale or somewhat in between certainly Craig Warmer's done a lot of great work on these over the years that are really important for creating that range of light environments following disturbance that will allow us to have a you know, yellow birch or even a paper birch in a, a sea of tolerant species, you know, in, in, in natural systems. And so, you know, these are regular shelter woods really because you are 
you know, often creating gaps, expanding those gaps over time. You can work with a range of species and maintain those, um, you know, a range from intolerant to tolerant species in the same stand. And, and a lot of the interest around these has been both um, kind of in, in Northeastern US, but also even more so in Quebec, um, where they're trying to kind of emulate these disturbances that have been important for maintaining, you know, yellow birch tends to be, and rightfully so, what a great tree, but tends to be, you know, one of the species, you know, how do you, how do you manage for the yeah. middle, you know, when, when you have all these tolerance. Around right. You, so. so it sounds like, so it's not even age, right? Cause we're not, we don't have that. And it's really not uneven age. It's kind of in that middle. And would you say this kind of, I, I see some of the interest around here is I think people see it as kind of a mismatch between what our natural processes are and what the tools we kind of have our, our standard natural regeneration practices are. Absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting, again, you know, not to keep hammering the word irregular, but, you know, when you look at the structure of a lot of our forests, even naturally, you know, rotated sigmoid and some of these, these curves that we often will see instead of that perfect balance structure, many of our forests are naturally irregular, either from disturbance processes, or we've created pretty irregular conditions by picking away at, you know, value and historically, you know, historic land use legacies. And so, you know, this has been a lot of interest and, and as you all know, I mean, in, in, in the Northeast around, you know, well, let's use like patch, patch select, you know, small patch cuts, which, which we call patch selection here, but really it's just group selection with, um, you know, often removals that are a bit bigger than, than typical group selection. And the whole notion of that was, well, you, you really target, well, there's a, a pocket of old mature trees, we're going to make a patch there. And then there's a pocket of, of, of advanced regen, we're going to make a patch there. And so, you know, responding to the the stand structure as opposed to trying to impose like this, again, this BDQ or, or arborgas type structure on a forest that doesn't quite have it. Um, and, and, and to be honest, it would be a challenge to, to sustain that. And so the irregular shelter was kind of nice in that you can embrace that irregularity where maybe, you know, 40% of the stand needs to be regenerated and you know, just from the perspective of risk um, and, and, and just potential opportunities for releasing advanced regeneration. But there's other areas that you still might want to cultivate um, and improve quality on, as well as retain um, as, you know, residual kind of structure on that site. And so it allows you to work with that um, template. And, and, and ironically, you know, when we see variable density thinning and some of these kind of newer techniques that came about um, in response to, um, you know, the biodiversity concerns in the Pacific Northwest, when I look at those, I mean, that looks a lot like an irregular shelter would to me, you know, what it is, um, they just use a different term. But you're creating that irregularity, and in, 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 in many cases, um, from an ecological standpoint, creating a you know an outstanding condition uh, from from just diversity of niches for for both the species we get excited about, like trees, but also other species. So, Tony, you were um, recently co-authored a book, Ecological Silviculture: Foundations and Applications, with Brian Palick and others. And so, what I hear you saying is, is this system uh, kind of consistent with what we would frame as ecological based silviculture. So emulating what would have been more of the natural disturbance patterns that we saw or. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I mentioned variable density thinning. I, I do feel like um, that was a missed talk about terminology being misapplied, you know, thinning for regeneration. I mean, this is not, not but yeah. Um, yep. So, you know, I think there were some missed opportunities even early on when, um, it was called new forestry, as we all know. It was old forestry, but in a different package. And um, that much of what was being done there, there, 
were irregular shelter woods in, in, in aspects of what we might call like a, just an extended irregular shelter wood, you know, leaving behind some kind of scattered legacy trees or variable density thinning, much more analogous to what you know what you would do with a continuous cover or regular shelter wood. And so, um, so I think just terminology-wise, if they'd stuck with maybe some of the traditional ones, it might have led to possibly even more buy-in on some of those those concepts early on. But to your point, Greg, yeah, a lot of what as it led to, I guess, you know, nothing's new in silviculture. I always, I joke, this is new, like we figured it out in the 19 teens. Um, but what's led to, I think that this being kind of the newest method that people are excited about is it does squarely um, overlap with a lot of ecological objectives because you're emulating disturbance. Retention is a big part of it. So you are leaving behind kind of large trees um, and either permanently or at least for an extended period. And so there's just many elements, both compositionally and structurally, that are consistent with the outcomes that we hope for um, with you know natural disturbance-based silviculture. Yeah. So Tony, thinking about so foresters might be because this kind of it's interesting. This kind of sits at that nexus between silviculture and restoration. So if people are interested in this and they're matching it up with say a, a, a cover type or a timber type they're working with, what should they look like in the natural disturbance regime or what's happened in their area to inform? Like say their their implementation of irregular shelter wood. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there, there's a there's really, and I mean, I mean, there's, there's three kind of flavors of of irregular shelter wood that, um, and Patricia Raymond um, in Quebec, and, and we've been fortunate enough, and Steve Bedard, and, and they're just a great group up there, and, and we've been fortunate enough to spend time on their lands when we could cross the border and all that good stuff. But, um, <laughs> you know, one of the references, if folks haven't read it, that we'll put up um, with this podcast is the outstanding review paper um, that they included in the Journal of Forestry um, on irregular shelter woods. And, and really um, what they did was, you know, review the, you know, the European literature and other literature around, around kind of what are the different forms and how does this fit in? And they kind of recognize three um, common kind of approaches to irregular shelter wood. And, and one I, I kind of view as like the vanilla irregular shelter wood, the extended irregular shelter wood. And, and really, um, that might have been what people might have been taught in, in forestry school, you know, even when I was taught like shelter wood with, with reserves, you know, you, you do shelter wood harvest. Yeah, or reserve shelter yeah, wood or scatter something. scatter it out there, mm -hmm. not, not much planned for that retention other than it's a structural element um, that, that could be harvested in the future, but more and more likely serving other values. And then the other two is where the things get interesting. And I think you start having the opportunity to pair up with um, natural disturbance regimes. And so the one that gets the most attention and, and partly because Bob Seymour, that was the, the approach that he took was kind of the expanding gap or regular shelter wood. Um, he, he branded his own local version of that, the Acadian uh, famous schlag. And, and so with that one, you know, basically, you know, similar to a group shelter wood um, where you're really targeting existing advanced regeneration um, and then creating gaps there and then progressively expanding those gaps over time. You know, that, that approach really um, kind of will create almost these waves of regeneration because you're progressively peeling that stand back. But one thing that I think is important about that is you can retain trees in those gaps. And this is where I think the flexibility comes in that, as we all know, once you put a tree in that gap, all of a sudden, you know, the light we thought we were creating is much less. And so, you know, being able to expand that and, 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 and factor in that retention can really provide some flexibility where you can, you know, retain yellow birch in the middle of that gap, but also, you know, make that gap effectively, you know, three quarters of an acre in size to, to meet the light requirements that it needs and, and so forth. And those gaps, Tony, they don't have to be like a balanced or regulated group selection, right? They can be 
quite variable depending on what kind of regeneration you have or exactly what structure you want. And that's the, I mean, you're reading the site um, to some degree uh, to, to really inform that, that placement. And, you know, that's not to say that you couldn't initiate, you know, because it is a shelter, you initiate, you know, regeneration in some places too, but, but, but trying to at least work with, you know, some of what's out there. And again, it can be informed too by like, these are high risk, you know, or these trees are, you know, we want to make sure we're capitalizing on, on, on this group of mature trees here. Uh, and so instead of focusing in on those spots on advanced region, it's like, this is a place where we want to make sure we're, we're getting, you know, harvesting done um, before we lose mm-hmm. some of those trees. So it can work both ways on that front. And then the other one is a continuous cover of regular shelterwood. Um, and that one really, you know, looks a lot like kind of a combination of single tree and group selection happening in the same stand, but the same to your point, Greg, Oftentimes, you know, maybe 30% of the stand um, is being put into groups. The, the remaining matrix is being um, thinned and improved. And then over time, you're kind of either progressively opening those groups into those matrix areas or creating kind of new groups elsewhere. But the continuous cover piece is that um, there's always overwood present um, in, in your regenerating areas. And so um, you kind of have this intermingling of cohorts, um, whereas with the expanding gap, you can actually um, because you're kind of, again, progressively opening gaps, um, there's often more of like a juxtaposition, like cohorts next to each other versus across the site. And so the, the reason I, that for that long-winded uh, explanation of that paper, one of the, the biggest take-homes I got from that paper, when I look at, they have a really nice table in there, um, really nice mm-hmm. for the eyes of a silviculture instructor. So, you know, <laughs> it's really cool. Because <laughs> they have, you know, all the different names for these different approaches, you know, Swiss, you know, shell, squish famous flag and Latin famous flag. And, and, and really, I think the biggest take home from that to me beyond just learning more about the technique was that these systems really were developed with a specific forest type and a specific set of ecological conditions in mind, you know, and, and it's always, you know, fun for us because I know we all get excited about Northern hardwoods to think about like how much we tried to even arborgast people use arborgast out here, you know, arborgast was developed for, you know, Michigan hardwoods, you know, and so it's just, right. And so the U S approach has always been, let's find the one silver bullet, silver cultural technique that works everywhere, you know, and with the regular shelter woods in particular, you can really see like these are being designed specifically for mixed species stands in that location. So trying to kind of manage that, that range of tolerances, but also trying to kind of manage for the range of objectives that folks might have in that landscape. So it's, it's kind of a nice, um, way to kind of match it with the ecology of the system you're working with. And, and so ecologically, we know that gaps expand over time. You know, once you get one, you know, pocket in the forest, things, things will coalesce. And, and so you can kind of emulate that with wind or, or for disease. Um, and even with like fire, you know, frequent fire systems, kind of that mosaic of woodland like structures that, um, you know, would, would give you that variable cover across the site would, would be very consistent with, you know, aspects of this as well. So that's, mm-hmm. So it's kind of that blending of kind of that blending of what your objectives are, but also the silvics of the species that you're dealing with. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I, I always kind of get a little confused by the continuous cover one, but I think what you said makes sense to me that it's sort of more of that blended approach. Yep. And, and if you want to look at it in traditional terms with a blending of single tree and group, but you're kind of reacting to what's in the stand. It yeah, and I think like. Tony, maybe even like uh, Robert Seymour, I've read his stuff where he, I, I've always been confused by that too, but I think he called it um, irregular group shelterwood with reserves yep. and kind of worked <laughs> through that. And that kind of felt like, then I kind of semi understood it, but it was still, I, I think it's one of those things until you see it or until you read about it, it's kind of a, 
ambiguous. And his key modification to, if you were to look at like the classic definition of an expanding gap, there really wasn't within gap retention, you know, and, and so, you know, one of the main objectives of the work mm-hmm. they were doing was trying to emulate natural disturbances in that region, which we know there'd be a, a surviving tree or, or, or a few within a gap. And so there, again, there's a, a trade-off with light that you just need to you know, make that gap larger or, 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 or open that gap more, more rapidly. And it's kind of exciting to think about like, so the Europeans did the place-based silviculture. They kind of had the names. And so Robert Seymour had Acadian Femmelschlag, which kind of brought that down. Have you seen, so as we start to think about this, as we start to experiment with it, are, are there things people should keep in mind when they go to implement something like this? Like I, I can imagine this is, if they've done other systems, this is going to be slightly different. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, not to ignore some of the key things that are important with any multi-age technique where if you're retaining trees and you're relying on multiple entries that you need to have the acceptable growing stock to carry the subsequent entries. And so um, Steve Bedard, uh, he works more in northern hardwoods but um, with Patricia Raymond, but Patricia is much more in the um, really cool forest types, more of a yellow birch, red spruce, um, kind of mixed wood forest. Um, and so the work Steve's done, they've, they've shown, I mean, you, you really need to be, you know, 40% um, acceptable growing stock uh, in the stand to, to, to make these you know, carry multiple entries. And, and if not, then you might be best off with the kind of the vanilla extended or regular shelter wood. But if you want to do continuous cover or expanding gap, you know, having that value because you're, you're not doing, um, yeah, you're doing sometimes heavy partial removals, but it's not, you know, obviously economically similar to what we would, you know, a clear cutting based or even a, a traditional shelter wood where a lot of that volume is coming off in a single, single entry. And so, you know, that's one of the keys is just thinking a little bit about the value in that stand and the ability to carry that and, and then, you know, to your point, you know, one of the challenges when we emulate natural disturbances is we ignore the soil part of it and, and we get excited about it. Like we've created the same amount of canopy disturbance as a wind event, but then we harvested on, you know, four feet of snow. And so, you know, it's <laughs> re- really not doing that. And, and, and particularly, you know, knowing your landscape where you have that, you know, abundance in many cases of sugar maple or, uh, you know, or hopefully not pen sedge, you know, creating some issues. And so really making sure that you're just like with a traditional shelter wood, you know, during that establishment cutting phase is your opportunity to really get in there and create those seedbed conditions and work with, work with the site and, and, and trying to do that in concert. But I, I think there's a lot of, the nice thing is, you know, the reason why we've seen shelter woods fail in the past is that people, you know, leave a little bit too much over wood. They don't get back out there soon enough. And, and all of a sudden there's a lot more hemlock and white pine, you know, as an example, but with this, you know, you, you're you're not kind of fixed to that just one entry to get back in there and release those trees, and so you can kind of progressively nudge along the silvics of multiple species, um, and even yellow birch. You know, we, we can can tolerate a bit of shade, but you know, once advanced, can really um, start you know accelerating above some of those other species, and so being able to work with those pockets over time versus just like you know with a traditional approach, if you got it, you got it, and then if not, then you're you're kind of it's a lost opportunity on those sites. I really appreciate that comment about consideration for acceptable growing stock within the stand and some of these other considerations, because I guess that's what I see as one challenge of this is how do we avoid maybe abuse of a system like this where it could slip into just an excuse to high grade a stand versus creating an irregular structure. And and that's been the challenge, to be honest. Um, You know, our current use program in the state of Vermont, you know, we, we use the you know, the civil culture guide that Bill League authored is kind of the, you know, if you're doing Northern hardwood management, it needs to be based upon these recommendations. Well, of course, the regular shelter would, 
you know, wasn't, it hasn't been really, we don't have very good long-term data like we do for a single tree and group and, and other approaches. And so what they've had to do is provide like a little bit of detail, like what is in a regular shelter wood and what does it look like? Because to your point, Greg, I feel like it's become a bit of a catch-all, like, ah, I just didn't regular shelter wood. It's like, well, I don't know, I don't know like grab some trees there, I didn't hear, and, and, and maybe it's in a regular shelter wood, but it doesn't seem like that was the intent. So I do think there is there right. is a risk there with misapplication. And I think it kind of comes down to, like you said, the long-term goals of keeping acceptable growing stock and developing that within the stand. So there are all these other considerations, as well as in the openings where you're trying to get regeneration and seed bed and those issues. It isn't about let's grab some trees here and grab some trees there and call it irregular. In some ways, though, it is reacting to what you're seeing. So imagine a marking guide for this must be kind of based on like an understanding almost of what you're trying to do as, as opposed to like, here are specifics for what I want to see in, in your marking. Yeah. And, and, I, and, you know, depending on how you want to go with it, if you did go the full natural disturbance emulation route, you know, it, there is an area based, you know, aspect to it um, because both with a continuous cover and with the, you know, expanding gap or regular shelter would both are, are using gaps as kind of a focal point. And, and again, um, gaps, I would argue with, with trees in them, you know, so, so gaps with retention, um, if, you, if that works with your objectives. And so because of that, you know, if you want to emulate a, a downburst, you know, in, in Northern Wisconsin, you know, we, well, you know, maybe 30 to 40% of the stand in that entry is going into gaps of various sizes or, um, you know, similarly with the expanding irregular, um, what, what, what some folks have said, well, we know we get an annual dis- or a decadal disturbance rate of 10 to 15% of the canopy. So I'm, I'm progressively opening up those gaps at that every entry, you know, at that rate. And so I think, I mean, I know that's a bit artificial just to say we're just going to emulate natural disturbances, but it, it gives you at least some kind of benchmarks as to, you know, what might make mm-hmm. sense for the total area um, that's being regenerated with those initial entries. And then the beauty of it is you're kind of responding to that response. Um, Cause of course, with a gap, we're going to get side light into the adjacent areas. You can actually, you know, especially with the continuous cover, you'll they'll actually treat the areas around those gaps. You're almost initiating, you know, additional regeneration in other parts of the stand, but in a much more uniform way. And so you can then respond to those areas in the next entry. Do I now have a pocket of regeneration I want to work with? That's our next gap. Or am I seeing along the edge of this gap, which is kind of the intent, you know, that side light giving me that shelter would affect around the edges that I now want to release that, um, you know, in sub- subsequent entries. But I think the, the marking is, is, is definitely there's not really a, a, a template for that, but I think as I'm describing this, I'm sure your, your brains are all going to all well, the operations sound like a nightmare too. And so, you know, making sure that you know if you're going to be expanding gaps and you know and in kind of even the traditional approach to this was you know you want to like regenerate the areas that you're never going to drive through again, you know, and so understanding kind of the limit of, of how far you want to go in, into that stand and recruit. And then when you're working off of that, you know, always falling kind of away from that new regeneration and, and working outward as a way to protect that. And so it does take a little bit of harvest planning that would be a bit different than certainly a traditional shelter would, but to be honest, maybe a little bit more straightforward than, than single tree selection. So, it, mm-hmm. but there's, it's, a, it's definitely would take some time to get your operators comfortable with it. I know to your point, Brad, we have written prescriptions along this line where we've given those broad parameters or sideboards like Tony's talking about percent of area in openings, you know, some of the uh, reserve trees within those opening specifications. So I think 
you know, you can, you could specify those within a marking guide and still then leave that flexibility for the marker to respond to what they're seeing in the stand. I think that's right. I think probably a lot of the time we're going out, we're, we're seeing the need for to become outside of what we're trying to do for the regular part, but oftentimes it's, can you do that or should you embrace it? And so I suppose the one good thing is that from an ecological perspective, we're going to have that emulation of the natural disturbance regime as a, a landowner, though, we might have to be prepared for irregular flows of income coming out of that stand over time. Yep. And that's where the, the, the other element of the irregularity comes in is, yeah, you don't have this sustained flow of, of yield like you would from, you know, traditional balanced uneven age management with a regular cutting cycle and so forth. Do these stands that um, are using irregular shelter wood, would they need maybe more careful monitoring? And by that, I mean, like when we set up a shelter wood, for example, um, it's a, we call it a process and not an event because we're watching the regeneration, we're monitoring it, we're seeing where it's at, and then making decisions then on further management. And I could see this happening in irregular shelter woods too, of if you're trying to prescribe future entries, you're really in this, maybe a process of monitoring that, seeing how the stand is reacting and then going from there. No, I think it's a great way of putting it. And, and I think the strength of both the shelter wood, you know, as, as a kind of a traditional shelter wood and irregular is that you are imposing some leverage over process by influencing shade but then you're also leaving options by, by having that overwood out there. So, you know, you're getting constant seed rain, you know, from, from those species. And so mm-hmm. those processes are going to generate sometimes not fully predictable outcomes in terms of like, wow, and like all of a sudden five years from now, we're starting to see this species come, you know, showing up and, and, in the work that Bob Seymour did, it was, you know, the white pine, um, and they left a lot of white pine behind um, as reserves. And, and it took a while for that to show up in some places, but now it's, it's pretty prominent um, in, in some of those stands. And, and so, yeah, I, and they've responded to it actually both with some um, tending treatments to kind of advance it a bit along as well as, you know, certainly opening up preferentially to, to favor that. So I, I, I think it's the same mindset that you are monitoring it and reacting to it and, and, you know, trying to have some flexibility and, and when you can remove to try to, um, you know, keep some of those species competitive that might be a bit less tolerant um, in those stands. Thinking about foresters who haven't worked with this, but are, are kind of listening to this and maybe wrestling with the idea and saying, Hey, maybe I should try this or so. So maybe it sounds like it's really flexible. We could use this in a lot of different places. Are there places you wouldn't use it? Um, or t- cover types or situations where maybe people should just back away and say, no, this isn't the right tool for you. I mean, it, it, it's not a panacea, but I do think it applies to a lot of um, scenarios. I mean, it can, it can be harder, you know, when, as I mentioned, when you do get to a point where you just don't have a lot of um, acceptable growing stock, you know, it, were, it may make sense to regenerate, regenerate a much larger proportion of the stand, again, trying to retain some of that um, unacceptable eco- economically, but highly acceptable ecologically um, residual material. And so I think in that case, just from an economics and operations standpoint, I mean, it, it's not it's not, you know, single tree selection, but it's, you know, you're still, you still need to be able to carry um, future entries that are not going to be of the volume that um, somebody might have with an even age method. So that'd be one scenario. And then I think also, you know, I, I did mention variable density thinning, you know, kind of, and, and that's often thought of in, in like plantations, you know, going in and trying to create heterogeneity in a very homogene- homogeneous um, construct. And so I think in there, you know, just um, bearing in mind that, you know, 
that that whole notion of trying to get advanced regeneration of desirable species that, that that process might not be there as effectively and so in those cases you know you might actually have to plant or do things to kind of you know recruit the, the species that you're interested in kind of you know diversifying that stand with but it, it does you know lend itself to a lot of our our forest types you know just thinking of our disturbance regime you know again not to Hale's work, but um, I do what I do because of Craig Larmer's work. You know, it's a real huge influence on on me um, for a long time. And and you know, you look at our, our forests, and it's just frequent, just frequent, you know, frequent small scale, frequent small scale. And every three hundred four, three to four hundred years, there's a, a like a mesoscale event, and it creates this really, um, you know, naturally irregular condition. And so, you know, across many forests, and that includes um, in our you know, a red kind of our mixed pine systems where there's a lot more variability in those disturbance regimes as well. I mean, um, maybe our barrens might not be perfectly suitable for, but um, you know, mm -hmm. mo most of the forest types, you know, it's quite consistent with our understanding of the ecology of those forests and, and, the, and the range of mixed species that um, can, can coexist in those, those stands. We recently did a show on degraded stands and it kind of yeah. reminds me of some of the rehabilitation treatments that would mm -hmm. be employed in those look almost like the irregular shelter wood system in a way. Absolutely. And that, I think that's why some have been, and, 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 and with good intent, excited about this as an alternative to what's always, well, it's a Northern hardwood stand, you have to manage it with, you know, uneven age management. Well, I can't because it's, you know, in a, in a you know, terrible, terrible shape or you know, right. I want to be able to, you know, in our sites, you know, with, with beach being a real challenge here, you know, pushing it more towards yellow birch um, on, on those sites where it's not a good maple uh, maple site that, you know, this type of system allows that um, a bit more effectively than um, mm -hmm. maybe the traditional uneven aged approaches um, would. So th there has been a lot of interest around that as well as a way to just convert to a more uneven aged structure, just, just not balanced. You know, you can, can over time kind of shift a, a more homogenous stand into a much more complex stand um, with this approach. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like actually, so it fits the idea of restoration. And I've heard you say in the past, I like this, it was the concept of, we're always going to have new objectives and new goals in forestry, but we're going to have the same old tools. Yep. So essentially just make sure you can fit your tools to that. So it feels like one of those things we might not have thought about was climate change. So this feels like maybe it's setting us up for that diversity of things with happening within a stand for, from a climate change perspective. No, I think you're right. And, and, and yeah, I definitely, we, we, we keep repackaging, you know, I mean, it's, I, I joke with my students, there's a reason my office is in, in the medical school, you know, they've got the, you know, they, you know, we might have a new thing every century or so, but yeah, it's really just, we have new objectives and, and, and similar tools and, and with the climate change element, you know, the mesoscale disturbance, when we look at, you know, drought tolerance and, and, and when we look at just, you know, diversity of species, if all we did was single tree selection and small group selection, we kind of know what we're going to get, you know, in terms of composition. And that's not functionally a good scenario from vulnerability to climate change, but all of a sudden you start doing a regular shelter wood, which could still carry, you know, you can still have sugar maple in those forests and hemlock in those forests, but now you're creating recruitment windows for, you know, yellow birch, you know, depending on the site, red oak, you know, as well as a range of intolerant tree species. And so even just the ability to create that diversity of composition and diversity of structures, um, even ironically, you know, some of the early use of this approach was in response to like avalanches and things in, in, in Switzerland, you know, kind of creating these waves in, in different heights of the, mm -hmm. the canopy as a way to minimize vulnerability to that. And so, um, there's a lot of things that we talk about from an adaptation standpoint that are very consistent with this. And even the work we've done with the regular shelter woods, 
um, we've been using the continuous cover approach and but creating larger openings. And that's where we're planting, you know, kind of those are the places where we know there's enough light for a red oak mm-hmm. or bitter nut hickory to, to grow as opposed to the other areas. We're still working with the existing stand and, and thinning thing, thinning the stand and, and treating the matrix like you would, um, you know, for other objectives. So I think it fits really nicely with um, global change adaptation type objectives. And, and actually even the, the Minnesota adaptive silviculture for climate change site in red pine, it's a, you know, it's an expanding gap, a regular shelter wood when they're kind of transitioning that forest as well. So there's a lot of, lot of compatibility with it um, and even um, the foresters for the bird program uh, you know one of the main prescriptions is you know the regular shelter wood and, and part of that is is because you're creating that you, know, you have some really good hiding cover with a kind of young regenerating stand but a mix of mature structure with that and just really blending um, kind of that range of, of, of niches that uh, you know, these interior bird species respond to. Tony kind of circling back to where Brad started and we, we off, like he said, we always talk about, Brad and I, about terminology. And uh, that's because as foresters, a lot of times we have to put these ideas down in writing yeah. in a prescription that we hand off to somebody else. And they may not implement it for years until later. And so we're always trying to be as clear as we can about what we're trying to prescribe. And I think this has really helped me, I know, just kind of think about this a a little bit more I don't know I'm always want to be structured (laughs) so I I like Patricia's article because it helps me kind of structure it in my head Um, but it's this conversation has helped me kind of get my arms around it a little bit better and think about how I might put that into prescriptions more clearly so I appreciate that no and I think reflecting on the cultural influences on all of us you know from a civil culture perspective, you know, the people that were that the textbooks that we've read and continue to read and the approaches that have been advocated for, for centuries. Um, and then in, in the U S for decades and in kind of the, the forest types we work in, this was not really one of the methods that was brought over, you know, and, and popular popularized. And so I think in some cases too, it's a, it's a culture shift on our own part to get comfortable with something other than, you know, any, you know, perfect mm-hmm. uneven age management and, and a hardwood site. And, and, and so I think, in many cases, that's unfortunately a challenge because we don't have the, the body of literature and experience with, with it. But I, I, you know, similar to those other approaches, you kind of locally vetting it and, and getting a better handle on, you know, what does work from both the, the civics of the forest you're working with, but also those objectives is really important. And so it's, it's, it's daunting, but it's also exciting in that, oh, we got something a little different to, to work with now. And, and part of that is just because we, for some reason, we wanted these perfect you know, balanced and, you know, all, all the things, all, all those positive adjectives, um, civil culture early on. And, and so you know, Dave Smith and those folks, it's interesting. There was a Northern Hardwood workshop in the mid eighties. And he said, these are regular forests. Maybe the best approach is this method called a regular shelter was, you know, it's like, well, finally, after, you know, six editions of that textbook, you're going <laughs> to, but you know, so, so anyway, I think there's, there's a lot to be learned. And so Greg, I think people are going to actually be, and I, I think about it from my context too. I think people are going to be really excited about this because as a forester, how many times do you get to look at a new regeneration system? I mean, that's kind of the cool part. You get to try something different. You get to actually see if it works. So I think this is good. And I think this is going to be, hopefully this is a, a, a launching point for a lot of people trying to think about, maybe I should try this. Really good discussion. And I appreciate your insights, Tony, as always. So we definitely have more to talk about here, but we'll just probably have to call it a, call it good for now. So 
until we find another chili beer. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's always the, those conversations. Yeah, so That's right. Mistake I'll never live down, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a mistake. No. It was, yeah. It was like, I finally found a beer that I just couldn't stomach drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Tony. Yep. Yeah. Great team. Both of you connecting. Yep. Take care. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, etc., and share them with our listeners. Hey, Brad, from time to time, we get a little philosophical about silviculture, right? Uh, a lot philosophical. Okay, well, this is really good to know and reassuring. Well, we're not the only ones. After listening to the Silvacast episode on degraded stands with Tom Hill... Listener Stephen from Houghton writes, he's reminded of a Leo Tolstoy quote, quote, healthy forests are alike. Every degraded stand is unhappy in its own way. I kind of like that. Yeah, but wait, Leo Tolstoy said that? <laughs> well, I don't think he said exactly that. I think Stephen was maybe paraphrasing. Maybe that's not the right word, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, first kudos to Stephen for actually listening to this podcast and reading Anna Karenina because that's <laughs> that puts him in like the most most unique demographic probably on the planet um, but hey True. for the rest yeah but for the rest of our listeners then this kind of ups the uh, ups the whole thing so they you gotta put down the game. Harlequin rom yeah put down the Harlequin romances and start bucking up and getting the Tolstoy out yeah that's right you know who we're talking to out there by the way yeah that's right Doug we're talking to you <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. All good things must come to an end. Yeah, Brad. But what does that have to do with this show? <laughs> Thank you, uh, Statler or Waldorf, whichever you choose to <laughs> associate I with. I don't know who I am there. Yeah. If you have any ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing WFC at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or your comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. All right. Thanks, Brad. And take care, everybody. And always, I want to send out a big thank you to our team, because we couldn't do it without you. Thanks, Haley Freider, our editor-in-chief at the Wisconsin Forestry Center, Noah Lemaid, who's our IT master and makes it all happen behind the scenes, and our theme music by Paul Freider. And a special thanks to UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. Take care. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>